Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Welcome to Women on the Line, a national women's current affairs program produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Anya Saravanan. Women on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past, present and becoming, as well as the owners of the land you're hearing us from. On today's show, we listen to excerpts from Invisible Voices 2020 Human Rights Day, a World Human Rights Day special broadcast on 3CR Community Radio. This special broadcast aired on 13th of December 2020 during 3CR's Queering the Air, and it was a live panel discussion about the issues impacting LGBTIQA forcibly displaced people in the Asia-Pacific region. This panel event was presented by Invisible Voices and Queering the Air in collaboration with Democracy in Colour and Forcibly Displaced People Network and in partnership with 3CR Community Radio. This event was also supported by Equal Asia Foundation. The panellists for the Special Human Rights Day event were Ryan Joseph Figueredo, Founder and Executive Director of Equal Asia Foundation, Ileana Rubushkin, co-founder of Rainbow Path Aotearoa and board member of Intersex Trust of Aotearoa, Tina Dixon, queer feminist academic, policy professional, refugee, co-founder of Queer Sisterhood Project and co-founder and chair of Forcibly Displaced People Network, and Hafsa Tamasudin, former refugee, advocate, human rights defender and acting deputy chair of Australia-New Zealand Pacific Working Group of Asia-Pacific Refugee Rights Network. In today's show, we will hear part of this panel discussion. To listen to the rest of the discussion, you can visit www.3cr.org.au forward slash queering the air. Today's show may contain descriptions and discussions on discrimination toward refugees, asylum seekers and forcibly displaced people, mental health, violence and queerphobia. This may be distressing to some listeners. If this is a trigger for you, please contact Lifeline on 131114 or QLife on 1800 184 527 or your state-based service. We're now about to listen to the panellists discuss their views on the global perspective when it comes to LGBTIQ plus people's forced displacement and the unique challenges that queer refugees experience in their journey to safety. We first listen to Tina Dixon, followed by Ileana Rubushkin and Hafsa Tamasudin. 
Last year, I've attended the first in the world global LBQ women's conference in South Africa. And the conference was on the issues of queer and trans women um, globally. And one of the really first, I guess, stunning reflections that I had was that throughout the whole time, we were talking about how in so many countries, LGBTQ plus people are still persecuted. And that's regardless whether we have the legislation that specifically criminalizes you for being trans or for being in same-sex relationships or not, or whether we're talking about those general experiences of discrimination and violence. Um, and we talked at the conference how challenging it is to be human rights defenders and you know how a lot of people suffer. And yet we never went to the point to say, and at some point in life, it is actually okay to go and seek safety when you can no longer do that. And I think for that, that moment showed me how still globally within the LGBTQ plus movement, there is some kind of a stigma when it comes to LGBTQ plus forced displacement. When we talk about activism, people are expected to stay in their countries um, of origin at all costs. And quite often that really results in loss of lives, but just not seek safety. And so then when you are an LGBTQ plus person and you were forcibly displaced and you're in new countries, you're not kind of getting that support from the LGBTQ plus communities to the full extent. So I think in that kind of sense, it creates a lot of challenges um, because at the international level and globally, the rights of LGBTIQ plus people more broadly are under attack. And we've seen so much more worsening situations in countries like Brazil, in Europe, in countries like Poland that declared LGBTIQ free towns, in countries like Hungary that banned gender studies, for example. But then you know, when we're talking about LGBTQ plus forced displacements advocacy at the UN levels, for example, we're really not seeing a lot of support from LGBTQ plus advocacy more broadly. And that creates the challenges because we even um, within the refugee advocacy, it's really challenging at the moment, it's a highly politicized issue. And so once you have, I guess, those intersectional identities added, um, it becomes even more difficult. Another point what I wanted to make is obviously about the pandemic. With the border closures, what we're seeing is that a lot of LGBTQ plus people were unable to go and seek safety um, because either the borders were closed for countries that were not able to leave, they potentially were stuck in those homophobic and transphobic households due to quarantine requirements. Quite often they didn't have appropriate access um, to healthcare. And I think during this time, many governments actually you know were able to in a way regress on a lot of commitments on a lot of access because you know we're sort of putting the greater good of the whole society but that inevitably means that we're really excluding those already marginalized and those who already didn't have equitable access whether to health or to justice or to any other services on the positive side i think there are some interesting developments happening in the space of LGBTQ forced displacement and at the moment, United Nations Refugee Agency is running a number of roundtables on LGBTQ plus possibly displaced people. So hopefully there will be a bit of more support or a bit of more, I guess, awareness happening on these issues, in particular in the humanitarian spaces. But I still think we have a long way to go when we are actually talking about LGBTQ plus refugee-led support and advocacy in this space. I just would like to make this complimentary comments from what uh, Tina said. 
And obviously, uh, the world is diverse and the world has different ways uh, of existence. So there is different ways of being gay. There is different ways of being trans. Or there is different ways, even culturally speaking, of how a person, you know, loves or how a person is or how a person body looks like. So there's different aspects of our identity. Uh, I come from a part or region of the world that is usually perceived as safe. Uh, Latin America is usually perceived as a place where actually uh, f f at the law, of, if you look in the law, it's safe uh, for you to be to be gay but or to be LGBTIQ. However, uh, if you guys are aware, uh, about 85% of the transgender murders in the world are happening just in Latin America, particularly in Mexico, Colombia, uh, Brazil, and Central America. So it is also important to understand that not because uh, we perceive a place to be liberal, it does, it does reflect on that place is, is being safe for a given population. Particularly, uh, this is something I just wanted to bring in perspective. And this happens in many, many, many parts of the world. Even right now in Europe, uh, many countries have become very unsafe for uh, people like us. And we are starting to see how these migrations or why we migrate is because we actually just need to to feel that we are safe and that we are respected and that uh, we can have a dignifying life in which our identity, the way we are, our bodies look, or the way we love is not a problem and we can enjoy and fulfill a life as any other human being. Um, as I am a former refugee and just to address it again, since the day that I was born, I didn't have a choice and I was born as a stateless. So I wanna bring the perspective of being a stateless and an asylum seeker and a refugee and being a queer, how many uh, layers of discrimination and exclusion that a person can have can terribly impact that person to move on and to live. And then if I look at it global perspective, whether it be it's in Asia Pacific region, specifically in Asia, people do have a lot of barriers, a lot of uh, discrimination if you are queer and if you are also being a stateless, if you're also being a refugee, if you're being also an asylum seeker, and there are layers and layers and layers of discrimination, exclusion and exclusion and exclusion. And people even can't find space to breathe and live. It's just so hard and so difficult. And unfortunately, until right now, I can say I don't, I don't see any significant language or spaces for these queer, non-binary people from that Asia-Pacific region, um, from the refugee background, from the stateless background, from the asylum seekers background. They don't just have any safe space. And I was in Malaysia, and I, I most of the time work as a volunteer in UNHCR compound, of course. They deal with a lot of refugees, but I can tell you that I didn't see any significant written or oral or any, any notification uh, guiding and telling the rainbow community that you are safe here. There is, there is a space for you, right? If you are a refugee, plus you are also being a queer, we have something for you. So if people don't see that, I don't know how can people try to have that approach to those people who are supposed to be saving the world or who are supposed to be doing humanitarian work. So in that sense, I think people are being excluded from the very uh, basic ground where they should have the humanitarian protection. And I, like Tina has mentioned, it's a long way to go. Compared to the past, of course, thing has, things are changing and have changed to a little tiny bit. But uh, from my perspective, there are too many things still um, need to work on, address to, and people need to change their language, their dialogue, and the way how they see uh, queer community as like another 
alien human beings of the planet, something very different. They need to see their perspective. They need to um, they need to change it. They need to change the language instead of saying that uh, bad things, including in a report in a project, for the sake of saying it. They have to say it because they believe in it. They have to say it because they believe in in, in equality. They believe in non-discriminatory because they believe in no one should be left behind. So that's my perspective. Um, I just want to say, uh, looking at the the UNXIA website, the recent website. Um, Asia Pacific region now hosts 7.7 million people of concern to UNXIA. That includes 3.3 million refugees, 1.9 million IDPs, and 1.4 million stateless people. So again, uh, looking at the refugees, the majority they are originated either from Myanmar or Afghanistan. Even if we don't know the very uh, much detail about how is the response to the queer community from those two countries, I believe that you can sense that intense and that conservativeness, that exclusion of this community from those countries. Of course, like I have mentioned, these refugees in those host countries, wherever they are stuck, they already have many layers and discrimination and hardship just to survive as the refugee, just to survive as the asylum seekers, because many countries didn't sign signature to 1951 convention, which means you don't have the right to work, you don't have the right to protect, you don't have anything. On top of it, you are a queer. <laughs> And it means you are excluded from your own family. You can come out to your own family. You can be seen by your own community. You are out of the system. There is nothing. And I, I have mentioned it in my previous uh, statement as well. I haven't seen very visible, significant, welcoming space for LGBTI community, not in Bangladesh, Kospazarken, where one, more than one million refugees are uh, being hosted. In Indonesia, there are so many refugees being hosted. And in, in Malaysia, um, not to mention that it's so many layers again. So right now, until this point, I would say there are so many things that has to be um, addressed to and, and, and also uh, to advocate for, for those agencies. If you are talking about inclusion of refugees, you cannot exclude a particular group of people under that title of refugees. If you're talking about um, meaningful participation of refugees and a stateless and asylum seekers, you cannot exclude that particular group of people or, or like um, eliminating that group or not mentioning them or not even having it on your paper, on your website. So that kind of things have to be addressed and have to change. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest issues that we have in the international area, in the international arena, is that uh, the being LGBTI is not is is not something that um, is being seen for those agencies working with refugees as something that deserves a special attention. And when I'm saying it doesn't deserve, as a person that uh, experienced these systems, uh, I I never felt that uh, that system somehow was even designed to have someone like me uh, claiming or requesting protection. So I I am I experienced that sense of like. Maybe I cannot even be a refugee because maybe I'm not, you know, my existence or my life or my experience doesn't frame well on how they understand a refugee should look like. like you know, uh, there is a pers perspective of how a refugee should look like. And we are LGBTIQ refugees. We are just aliens to that, you know, to those definitions. So based on that or, you know, understanding that when when you are a transgender person or you are very differently, your body is different or or your documents quite don't reflect who you are in many ways, because that can happen also to intersex persons, by my, like myself. 
So it will be always a challenge for you first to like grow up in an environment that is really hostile to your existence. And, and also it will be also um, very difficult for you to escape that environment because if you are born uh, in, a, in a situation in which uh, you are being hated or you, you, you live in an environment that's so hostile with, against you, you wouldn't be able to have ways to get out of that environment. So you actually have to make yourself in some way or another like that environment or actually get adjusted to that environment. So it will be very unlikely for you to escape an environment that is so hostile. So a lot of trans people, they actually, they, they cannot escape. So they, they cannot be refugees because they don't have the money, the funds to escape that environment. Women on the line. On community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. You just heard part of the panel discussion called Invisible Voices 2020 Human Rights Day, a World Human Rights Day special broadcast on 3CR Community Radio. This special broadcast event aired on 13th of December 2020 during 3CR's Queering the Air and it was a live panel discussion about the issues impacting LGBTIQA plus forcibly displaced people in the Asia-Pacific region. We now return to the conversation where the panellists Tina Dixon, Ileana Rabushkin and Hafsa Tamasudin talk about their lived experience in relation to the resettlement process and the supports in place. There are a lot of um, assumptions that when LGBTQ plus people find safety in the Western countries, such as Australia, Canada, or New Zealand, that that safety becomes really absolute um, and all of the supports are in place and their journey is complete. What we're seeing through the work of FDPN is that so much more needs to be done. Uh, people are coming from um, context where you know they were persecuted for being who they are or, or loving who they love. However, in countries like Australia, for example, the support system for LGBTQ+, possibly displaced people, is not yet that well developed. Of course, we have great supports um, in place for people who are refugees or great supports in place for people who are LGBTQ+, but we still need to build those bridges between those two sectors and really understand those intersectional and cross-cutting issues that people are experiencing. Similarly to other people seeking asylum, um, LGBTQ plus people seeking asylum are not eligible for any income support in Australia. So I think for those people who come here um, seeking safety um, on shore, um, it's a really challenging space because um, they're really on their own. Because not only they're not eligible for that income support, they rarely have any communities to rely on. We know that experiences of racism and xenophobia are real within queer communities. And we also know that experiences of um, homophobia and transphobia will be real in the ethnic refugee communities. Of course, it's not to say that that's, you know, what happens to every single person, but those experiences do exist. 
So I think um, in general, when we're talking about the rights of LGBTQ plus forcibly displaced people in Australia, we still have, in a way, a long way to go. Um, in 2019, we convened the Queer Displacement Conference and in the report, there was about 11 areas um, for action that would actually ensure that safety, community and belonging for LGBTQ forcibly displaced people in Australia. And as of DPN, we're working on those ones. Um, but I guess as many speakers will be talking today, we do need a much bigger action and a much broader solidarity um, on the issues across the board. All right, so I will just begin and then I will let my, my friend Hapsar to continue. But uh, um, there, there are two kinds, uh, I would say, of refugees. Uh, the, the quota refugees that are the ones that come um, as part of the United Nations quota for refugees. And then the convention refugees that are the ones that uh, arrive to New Zealand and request asylum in New Zealand, in Australia, New Zealand. So the experience for these groups is they're different, they're completely different because quarter refugees usually have a, a, a more, more support from the government. They, they have more things that are designed for the resettlement. Still not an easy journey, it's quite complex as well, but there are a few things that uh, you can somehow use to somehow help yourself. It's still a challenge. That's the way I came to this country. But unfortunately, um, I would say approximately 85 to 90% of the LGBTQR refugees that are living in New Zealand actually come from the other way, which is as a convention refugees, as asylum seekers. And they actually have pretty much absolutely nothing to use as a way for themselves to help themselves. And so they are isolated. Um, they cannot pretty much be out in their community, especially if they are belong to uh, ethnic community they have to be very secretive about who they are. So it's kind of like coming to safety, but also be again in the closet just because of survival. That survival mechanism remains here. There is also a perpetuation of that discrimination. A lot of us here in New Zealand cannot change documents and IDs. So even if we come here, we get recognized as refugees. We have to use our old IDs and names and that just creates so much, so many challenges that you can just imagine like, getting a, a rent in a house, a job, a driver's license, opening a bank account. And those, that's just a very small, tiny, tiny thing that makes a life so miserable. So, and this is just one of the many, many other things. Access to health, access to uh, jobs and all the discrimination that um, Tina was mentioning is also happening here in New Zealand. So we are more likely to be like living under complete poverty and we rely on food banks and sometimes we rely on those kind of helps. But we, we also find that for us to get help that all the refugees get is challenging because those organizations providing that help are not necessarily queer friendly or at least they don't make it obvious or they make it clear that accessing help through them is safe or that's a safe space for us. So yeah, this is just a small uh, comment from my end. Thank you, Liana. Um, you have covered most of the expert that I'm going to say, but um, I just want to add on the fact that I think, um, in my knowledge, there is only one organization that supports asylum seekers in New Zealand, uh, in, based in Auckland, the organization that I work as a part-timer, which is called uh, Auckland. It used to be known as Auckland Refugee Council, uh, which is now known as Asylum Seeker Support Trust. Even then, this organization is not it's a bigger umbrella. This is not only for Rainbow, but that, that is inclusive for the Rainbow community as well. 
But what I see um, based on the experience of me being in this country and being in this space of advocacy and, 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 and activism, what I see is I don't think New Zealand has such an asylum-seeking policy that protects the rights of LGBT communities uh, and, and LGBT asylum seekers not to be dehumanized while they are seeking their asylum. Because one of the examples that I heard from people is um, the kind of act that gay couple being asked to be uh, to kiss in front of immigration officer to prove that they are actually gay, they are not making it up just to get a asylum seeking status is dehumanizing in my perspective. Such kind of act shouldn't happen. And I don't think we have um, the policy that will protect asylum seekers plus LGBT people not to be harassed and dehumanized. And that is something we really need to um, work on and push uh, and, and inform the policymakers to make it happen. Of course, uh, for the convention refugees, there are so many things that they, people are still struggling and we are doing a lot of advocacy around that to have equal rights, which was the case for me when I was in Malaysia because Malaysia is not a signatory country uh, of UN convention, which is the, um, the difference between New Zealand. New Zealand is a com- uh, signatory country to UN convention, yet these people are on your land already and these people are uh, already, already submitting um, asylum-seeking claim and you have already granted them as a refugee. Here you go. We accept you as a refugee, but we don't want you to have such equal rights. This doesn't make sense at all. And of course, if you are an asylum seeker and convention refugee and an LGBTQI community, there is, yeah, I don't know how to explain it. It is so exclusive. These people are not being inclusive. And even uh, as my colleague Eliana mentioned, many agencies are just, I would say they have just started to realize that they need to change the language. They need to include these people in their system, in their website, in their work. But it is still ongoing conversation. It is still inviting us to talk to them. It is still in the air. So what I really want to say is if you really want to make a change, if you don't know how to do that, seek advice from LGBTQ community with live experience. There is no harm to seek advice. Bring us on the table. Make the changes one step at a time. Of course, we have a bigger goal to achieve, a bigger destination to go, but we can break it down into a micro level of action. Do the first step, like having very simple thing in your form. If you have a referral form to your organization, let's say for counseling, you don't have a box for LGBTQI. You only have male, female. You don't have any um, anything that assure LGBTQ community to feel safe to come and talk to you and to your counselor. And let's say you have a website that talk about refugee and asylum seekers. You don't have specific things mentioning. We also welcome LGBTQI plus people in our space. We are ready to talk to you with the same dignity and respect. We don't have that. So in achieving that bigger goals, we can break it down into micro level, micro actions and take it one step at a time if you really care about us. That's what I want to say. We don't want a lot of talking. We have done enough talking. Now what we want to see is the action. The action doesn't have to be um, the big giant one. It can be the small little micro step. Yeah. And that's all for Women on the Line today. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can listen to the rest of this panel discussion on www.3cr.org.au forward slash Queering the Air. You can also follow the work of Forcibly Displaced People Network on Facebook and Twitter at FDPN underscore LGBTIQ.
Women on the Line is a national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia and the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is produced by Ripley Cavera. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. I'm Anya Saravanan, and we hope you have an amazing week.